Well, once again, we turn to Luke's gospel, still in chapter 2. God willing, finishing that up this morning. Learning about the Word, the way the, that Luke presents the Word to us in a very practical way, in a very visible way, um, shows us the Word, shows us the Word in action, shows us the impact of the Word. And this morning we get to see it for the first time in the person of Jesus himself as a young boy. The story of Jesus and his family going to Jerusalem and uh, Jesus being left behind in the temple or staying behind in the temple. So let me read that for us. We'll begin at uh, verse 41 and read to the end of the chapter. That will be the passage that we consider this morning. Luke 2, 41 to 52. Let me read that for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Again, may he write it upon our hearts here this morning. As we come before the Word again, let me pray for us. Great God and Father in heaven, we now come before your Word. As always, we ask your blessing upon this time. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would fulfill your promise that the Word would go out from this place and not return to you empty. That it would accomplish everything that you purpose for it. That it would be successful in everything for which you send it. We pray for us that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that our ears would be open to hear and so that our eyes would be open to see the things that you have for us this morning. Do make your word, we ask, a light, a lamp to our path and a light, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet that we may walk according to what it teaches. Father, we ask all of this in the precious name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, up to now, as we've gone through the first couple chapters of Luke, long chapters, the focus of Luke's story was the coming of the Word, its announcement, the baby being born. But we've seen more or less the the reaction of those around the Word as it comes. Announcements from angels, the baby born in a manger. We've seen lack of faith 
and the discipline that came with that to create faith. We've seen the faith of Mary without hesitation. We've seen her acceptance of and submission to the Word. We've seen people living life according to the Word, as we should. So it's all been things around Jesus as the announcement comes and as the baby is born. Now for the first time we get to see Jesus himself, Jesus living, Jesus in action, so to speak. Luke is the only one who gives us any kind of a story about Jesus' youth. That period between his birth, which everybody writes about, and his public ministry, which began when he was about 30 years old. That means every other story that you've ever heard about boy Jesus is wrong. (laughs) They're called apocryphal for a reason. They're not true. They're made up. Some of those are attempts to extend miracles into Jesus' youth to show how divine he was. Some of them are stories of Jesus being like other little boys, kind of naughty, and having to be disciplined by his parents. Silly stories that don't add anything to the biblical stories of Jesus. And some are dangerous, those ones that try to show Jesus like another little boy because we know, according to Scripture, that Jesus never sinned. Well, this is the only true story, and it comes to us inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And it's more than just another miracle story. This is a story that shows us the character of Jesus, even at the age of 12, what kind of a person he was and is. And that's one of the things I want to focus on this morning. Who is this boy Jesus at 12 years old? Here again, though, and we're going to see this as a pattern now in Luke, the actions of Jesus, the reactions of people around him. That's going to be something we see over and over again. And we'll see it here again in this passage. What I will do is cover those two ideas, but I want to begin um, by talking a little bit about the story How do we understand what's going on here? How do we understand Jesus' behavior and the reaction of his parents? There's different approaches to that, and I'd like to, if your mind is unsettled about that, hopefully we can ease that uh, before the morning is over. So here's this story. Jesus is 12 years old. That's one year before he becomes a full male member of the synagogue. One year before... He becomes a son of the commandment, his bar mitzvah. In other words, under the law, but a keeper of the law, a preserver of the law, one who has the responsibility as a member of the synagogue to pass this law on to the next generation. One year before that's about to happen. And as his family does year after year after year, they go up to Jerusalem for the Passover likely traveling with a large group, because that was safe, safe from attack. Usually the women traveled with children up at the front, and the men would travel and fellowship together at the back. But as they return, they get one day's travel out. Now, one day's travel is a good 10, 15, maybe even 20 miles. Where's Jesus? Is he with the women and children? Was he with the men? Mary and Joseph could have each assumed he was with the other. 
They can't find him. So they go back another full day's travel. And either they spend another day searching so that it's three days since it happened, or they spend three days searching so it's been five days that Jesus has been missing. Either way, he's been missing a while, a 12-year-old boy. They finally find him in the temple. And Mary says in verse 48, I can just hear a mother saying this. Why have you treated us so? Why have you treated us like this? You can expand on it a little bit. I don't like doing this too much, but you can sense the overtones because we know mothers, right? Do you realize how I've been thinking? Do you realize how much I've been worrying? Where have you been? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We're in a panic about you. (laughs) Jesus' response, why were you looking for me? There's a little bit of comedy there. Why were you looking for me? I've been here. Where else would you expect me to be? Verse 49, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Or depending on how you want to translate the Greek, I must be about my father's business. Says they didn't understand him, but he went with them and was submissive to them. And as he grew up in Nazareth, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What do we make of this story? What's going on? This is Jesus, the holy, infallible, inerrant, perfect, sinless Son of God and Son of Man. It appears that Jesus is being disobedient because he didn't return with the group when he was supposed to. I mean, how could he not know? But we know he couldn't have sinned because, again, we know that Jesus lived his life without sinning. Many scriptures tell us this. Hebrews 4.15 is quite clear. Now, there's some who will say, well, he hadn't reached the age of accountability yet, so it doesn't count, which is just absurd. One, it's not scriptural. Two, sin is sin no matter when it happens. Others look for somebody to blame. I can't blame Jesus. He's perfect. Let's blame the parents. It's the parents' fault. They take Jesus' question to them. Don't you know that I should be about my, that I must be about my father's business in my father's house? Well, therefore, Mary and Joseph must have been wrong. They should have known. They should have went looking for him there. They should have known if he wasn't around, that's where he would be. Yes, they should have known. But is, is that sin? Is it blame? Or why do we always feel like we have to assign blame to somebody? I don't think this is a case about blaming people, either Jesus or his parents. The clue for me about what's going on here is in verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom. Twelve-year-old boys are not that wise. And I think we can say that without dishonoring Christ. There was a point in time we, we need to know this about our Savior. There was a point in time where he had to learn how to walk, where he had to learn how to talk, where he didn't know basic things about life. And apparently at 12, he didn't know that when your parents go home, you're supposed to go home with them. There are certain things that Jesus had to learn to grow in wisdom. We tend to think about wisdom as this spiritual, theological category 
But it's very practical as well. Go back and read the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is very practical, and Jesus apparently was lacking in some practical wisdom. It reminds me of a story of my brother when he was about eight. Uh, we lived in a, a neighborhood of Seattle called Ballard, and, and every neighborhood in Seattle has its own little downtown. And I think that weekend they were having some sort of a, a sidewalk sale. So we went down, as we often did. You could go shopping in these neighborhoods for everything. We had the pennies. We had a Woolworths. We had all these little markets and stuff. You didn't have to go anywhere outside of your neighborhood. So we're down there looking for deals. And as he often did, usually in grocery stores, he got lost. Well, in a grocery store, it's easy to find him. But out on the street, <laughs> he got lost. And I tell you, when, it, when I read Joseph or Mary saying about uh, what they were doing, we have been searching for you in great distress. It's been decades. I still remember how distressed my parents were. Where is he? We cannot find him. Finally, they, I, I think they must have decided to, to go home and call the police or something, get some investigation going. We lived maybe a mile or so from this downtown area. So we all trundled into the car, drove home walked up the stairs, turned the corner, looked at the porch. Guess who's sitting on the top step? <laughs> My eight-year-old brother. This is the kind of thing boys do. Now, my parents might disagree with me, but I don't think he sinned. He, he was just like one of those kids who got lost because he got distracted by things. It happened. He showed enough smarts to walk home. Nobody's to blame. So I think something similar is going on with Jesus here. I don't, I don't think we have to assign blame. I think we just need to see this as a 12-year-old boy who's doing what 12-year-old boys do. He still needed to learn wisdom. He did learn it. He did go home, submit to his parents, and grow in wisdom and stature, maturity, and favor with God and man. So I don't want us to get confused about sin and, or blame in this case. It's a story about a boy. But it's a story about a remarkable boy. And, and so the second thing I want to talk about is this idea about who is this Jesus, even as a 12-year-old boy. Because we see here already the character of our Savior. What kind of man he's growing up to be. And the key to understanding this is that question that he asks his parents in verse 49, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be about my father's business. Neither house nor business are in the Greek, and so we have to kind of use some discretion about how to translate it. But the idea is either way, Jesus must be focusing on his father and the work that his father has called him to do. He's about his father's business. His focus is on his father. And his parents should have known that. They heard the prophecies about who he was. Mary had treasured these things up in her heart. And we know as well that Jesus came, at least in part, for the purpose of glorifying his father. Look at John 12, verse 28, or chapter 17, verse 1. He came to keep his father's commandments, he says in John 15, 
10. We know that he had a tremendous zeal for his father's house from our New Testament reading from John 2, that very first incident from his public ministry. He came to do his father's will. There he is in the garden, Gethsemane, before his death, praying about this cup that's been given to him. And he submits, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, at the age of 12, may have been immature in some ways, and in some ways lacking in wisdom, but he already knows to some degree who he is, and he knows what his purpose is, to glorify God his Father and to do his will. That's a powerful thing for a 12-year-old boy. He learns, I've caused my parents distress. Now I need to be wise and follow them and submit to them. Jesus had to wait 18 years. He knew who he was at 12. About 30, he began his ministry, it says. 18, 20, maybe even 25 years, he had to wait to do what God, his Father, had called him to do. Imagine that. That's a long time. Knowing who you are, having to wait to do that. This is our example. This 12-year-old boy is our example. What did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? His Father's will. Whatever glorifies His Father. So what should we do? Same thing. Do our Father's will. We'll do whatever glorifies Him. Well, how do I know what that is? Well, first... To believe in him whom the Father has sent, his Son, Jesus the Savior. Jesus tells the crowd this in John 6, verse 29. The first thing of importance then is to repent, turn away from sin, and submit to and believe in Jesus as Savior. Turn in faith to God in Christ. That's the first thing to do, to glorify God. Along with that, second, to obey him whom the Father has sent. If you love me, keep my commandments, he says, John 14, 15. That's nothing more than an imitation of Jesus who kept his Father's commandments. It says in John 15, verse 10. How do I do that? You've got to know the word. Jesus is there in the temple, it says, Verse 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. That's how you learn. (laughs) Listen, ask questions. Listen, ask questions. Read your Bible. Come, ask questions. Ask questions of each other. Ask questions of me. Ask questions of others. Learn, dialogue. Come to worship on Sunday. Come to Bible study on Wednesday. Get your own Bible study going. Have your private study, whatever it might be. Know the word so that you can know what the commandments of God are and do them. Regular fellowship and being part of a good church is vitally important. Pray for the power of the Spirit and presence of the Spirit in your life. Because we can't do it without Him. can't do it on our own. We need the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus modeling this to us as a 12-year-old boy. 
and we can learn from him. We already see his character to come and glorify his Father and to do the work that he was sent to do. Well, there's also, also the reactions of the people around him. Again, we're going to see this over and over again as we move through the, the next few chapters of, of Luke's Gospel. And what we see here, I think, are two different reactions. First, it says amazement and a lack of understanding, both by his teachers in verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. But then in verse 50, his parents, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Second reaction is to treasure up what is being said and what is being seen. This is Mary again. We were told us about her in verse 19 of chapter 2. Now we see it again here in verse 51. Those are the two reactions, I think, that you see to the word. Either those who believe or those who do not. Those who treasure up the word, those who are amazed and don't understand. And I think that's one of the reactions, indeed, of those who do not believe. They hear, the, they hear God's word oftentimes and see the wisdom in it, its values, its morals, its ethics, its spirituality, some of the practical advice in places like Proverbs. But unfortunately, that's all they see. It's just a book full of, well, partly full of some helpful stuff. Some do not even see that. Just perplexed baffled by the things that are written here for us. That's the experience of many who do not believe in Jesus. Their minds are clouded by sin, and their hearts are full of rebellion against God and against Jesus. There are those who don't even get that far, just cannot even accept the word, reject it completely. They don't understand it. We're going to see this reaction as we go through Luke's Gospel. Contrasted with those who believe. Mary was upset. She's a mom. But when her son answered, she knew there was something bigger going on. She didn't understand it, but she had some inkling. She had already heard the word from the angel, from the shepherds, from Simeon, from Anna. Now there's some confirmation going on here. She didn't quite understand what was going on, but here is this boy, her son. And she's seeing this is the one promised. This is the Son of God come to save his people. And I think that changes her attitude at least a little bit, especially as, she, as Jesus comes home and submits to her and to Joseph. This is the one promised. This is the spotless one, the righteous one, the Savior, the Messiah. And that realization changes her attitude so that by the end of verse 51, Luke can say again, again, the repetition. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Again, there's a good reaction, a good example for us. 
We may initially rebel, we may initially reject or be surprised or astonished or amazed at the stories about Jesus, but when we see them for what they are and see him for who he is and what he has done for lost, dead sinners, our attitudes should change. Wow, this is truly the Son of God. This really is the Savior. I do need to repent. I do need to submit to him in faith. I do need to believe in him. I do need to follow him. Hear his commands and do his commands. And in addition to that, treasure up who he is and what he's done in our hearts. Luke says it twice in this chapter. So I'm going to repeat it again, what I've said already. This should be your regular practice, to take time, stop, pause in the busyness of life. Treasure up the things that God has done. You can see them here in God's Word, but you've experienced them in your life as well. How has God taken care of you? How has God blessed you? What has God done for you? Dwell on these things and treasure them up in your heart. Do this. And you will, like Jesus, glorify God your Father in heaven. That is our chief end, is it not? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus went about His Father's business with determination and with joy. Treasure up who He is. Dwell upon those things. Dwell upon what He's done for you. And you also can go about your Father's business, glorifying Him and with great joy in your heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed, it is a little bit daunting to see this 12-year-old Jesus and know that He is our Lord and Savior. Learn from Him at such a young age. See him as, as such a wonderful example. We thank you for this part of your word, this part of his life that you've preserved for us and ask that you would teach us from it. We do want to be those who respond positively to the word and not negatively, treasure it up and store it up in our hearts and ask that you would enable us to do that by the power of your spirit working in us, that we might glorify you that we might enjoy you forever, that we might be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.